welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hi, my name's Patrick Hennessy. I'm the author of Kandak, Fighting with Afghans. And I'm here at Penguin to take over this episode of the Penguin Podcast, appropriate enough on war and writing. It always amazes me how much fascination there is with war, whether it's uh, massive sales of history books, uh, sales of computer games in which people play combat roles, or sales in in classics of war writing. It seems that for something that is um, on the face of it so terrible, we all have a fascination with war. Uh, I think that might be because people are put into extremes in conflict in a way they're not in many other situations. And fortunately, these days, very few of us have experienced those extremes. And so there is a a tendency, both for those who've experienced it, to be able to write about something that very few others have experienced. And obviously, those who haven't experienced it want to read about that. There is, of course, the thing where um, in war writing, as in war itself, you can find out of the worst situations some some shining examples of, of human goodness. When I've been writing my own books, uh, Kandak about the fight in Afghanistan in particular, but before that, the Junior Officers Reading Club, which was about being in the army in general and being in Iraq as well as Afghanistan, I was influenced both by books that had been in real wars, uh, things like uh, Rupert Graves' Goodbye to All That from the First World War, Catch-22, Joseph Heller's comic masterpiece from the Second World War, but also books about soldiers who weren't actually fighting uh, and armies at peace, which can be sometimes as amusing and sometimes as dangerous things. Um, We're going to look at some books today um, and have some interviews and readings with authors who, all like me, based their books on different wars. Uh, First, A.L. Berridge is going to talk about the Crimean War, which she used as the backdrop to her book Into the Valley of Death. She's followed by a reading from Crusade, read by author Stuart Binns, before he discusses writing about the Crusades. Next, Harry Sidebottom answers questions on his Warrior of Rome books, including the latest and fifth book in the series, The Wolves of the North. And then the author of War Memorial, Clive Aslett, discusses the importance of remembering the lives of the soldiers who fought and died for their country. Finally, I'll be answering some questions on my own latest book, Kandak. So first up, here's A.L. Berridge talking about the Crimean War. Hi, my name's Danny Horn. I'm audiobooks assistant editor at Penguin, and I'm here today with Louise Berge talking about her new book and about writing historical fiction. So, Louise, you're just about to bring out a new book called Into the Valley of Death. Could you just give us a quick synopsis? Yes, Into the Valley of Death is the first in a new series featuring a Victorian military hero called Harry Ryder. And this one's set in the Crimean War. It's um, At this stage, Ryder is a very young man. He's only 18, thoroughly disillusioned with the army. It's destroyed his own career and his father. He has to start again with nothing. And now he has to go into the army and serve in the ranks. And the Crimean War is the worst place to do that because what it's most famous for, of course, is the incompetence of the officers and the hideous tragedy of what actually happened out in the Crimea. Ryder is going to take us through the first few terrible months of the British invasion of the Crimea, covering the battles of Alma, Balaclava and Inkerman. And most importantly, he's going to have to solve a mystery about the charge of the Light Brigade. I think it's really interesting that you've chosen to write about the Crimean War. But to be honest, I think not not a lot of people know that much about it, bar the whole charge of the Light Brigade. Do you think you'd give us a little background? Absolutely, because I find it really quite distressing how little people do know about the Crimean War because at the time it was a huge popular thing. And when you think about it, its heritage is all around us. Even where I live, there are so many roads called Alma Street, Alma Road, Alma Cut. 
there are actually more pubs in the UK named after the Battle of the Alma than there are after Waterloo. But you see the names everywhere. Balaclava, the Balaclava Helmet. Cardigan came from Lord Cardigan, the charge of the Light Brigade. The Crimea was huge. It gave us Florence Nightingale. It gave us the Victoria Cross. It's one of the biggest and most important wars we've ever had. It was the first where we used the telegraph, the first proper war photographer. It really changed the future of warfare. All of which, of course, is what attracted me in the first place. Part of the problem is that not many people know what the war was actually about because, of course, it was in the great days of the British Empire. And really, although it began with a dispute between Russia and Turkey over the control of the Church of the Nativity in the Holy Land, really what it was about was Britain trying to keep control of the seas, of the oceans, to protect her power at sea, and France also seeing Russia as, as a major threat. When the, the Russian Navy destroyed the Turkish fleet... Britain and France decided to gang up against them with Turkey and fight back. And the plan was to try and take the naval base of the Black Sea Fleet at Sevastopol in the Crimea. And that's the part everybody knows about, the invasion of the Crimea to try and take Sevastopol. Wow, that's really interesting. To be honest, I didn't realise how much it was bound up in a lot of our own kind of national identity and things like that. That's right. Most people don't. It is really only Florence Nightingale and occasionally cholera, people remember. That and the Charge of the Light Brigade, which is a rather depressing way to remember a war. And, you know, I think that's what's really interesting about, about your latest book, because we know so much about the First World War, about the Second World War. And interestingly now, we're kind of becoming a lot more interested in what's going on in our more recent wars. But there have been so many battles in the past. And I think that's what makes it so great that you've taken this key thing that really influenced the history of, of Europe. And also, I would say, really the history of the British Army, because it was a major turning point. You, people are familiar vaguely with the phrase the thin red line. It's even been parodied in the thin blue line. But that came from the Crimea. That was the stand of the 93rd Highlanders when they actually stood in a thin line to face a charge of Russian cavalry. It had never been done before. Normally, infantry have to form square to face a charge of cavalry. It was one of the most courageous and heroic stands. But we've completely forgotten about it. What perhaps we also forget is that before the Crimean War, most of Europe considered that Britain could only fight at sea. Yes, we'd won Waterloo, but that was because we had a great commander. People assumed the British infantry weren't particularly good. The Russians weren't even scared of us. They used to tell their soldiers, oh, you're, you're all right, you're only fighting the British, they won't be any problem. But after the Battle of the Alma, when they saw, again, more thin red lines of the infantry marching towards them steadily under cannon fire and uphill, young boys who'd never before been under fire in their lives, when the Russians saw that, they were terrified. They called the guards the devils. They called the Highland Brigade devils in skirts. And from then on, when they needed their troops to fight the British, they used to lie and say they were sending them against the Turks. The war affects a lot of characters in your book in a lot of different ways. Do you think that it, kind of, it has the same impact on society now as it did then? In a way, no, because the nation never gets behind a war in the same way. When you think about the way the British public responded to what was happening in the Crimea... It was the very first war where the public did actually know because we had a Times correspondent out there, William Howard Russell, and his reports sent home changed the face of warfare. That's what brought Florence Nightingale out there. The British public sat at home and knitted balaclava helmets for the freezing troops. They did everything they could to help them. It was a great patriotic matter. War now 
And I think I have to say that this is a good thing. We see much more as something tragic. People do not rush to the colours in the same way that they did then. It's very sad reading the diaries and letters and memoirs of these young boys who went out there and their excitement at the idea of going to war. It's hurrah for the Crimea, one of them writes, the day before they embark. And I don't think anybody would do that now. We know a little too much. I think we're rather more grown up. Like I said before, we have like so much war in writing. And do you think it's important that, that we remember these things? And do you think it's important that we try to use fiction to create more awareness? I think it's particularly important with the Crimean War because it's that old thing of um, if we forget our history, then we're doomed to repeat its mistakes. And the colonialism, particularly of the 19th century and of the Crimean War, has a lot of light to shed on what's actually happening in the world right now. The fact that first Russia and then Britain saw themselves as policemen for the world and were muscling in, interfering, taking over territory, it's something we perhaps ought to be thinking about a little now. Well, you write a lot of great historical fiction, so do you think that's kind of, kind of something that attracts you to that genre? I think so. There certainly has to be some strong reason because it's probably the most difficult and labour-intensive genre you can possibly write. If I'd known, I'd never have started doing it. But, yeah, the fascination of history, it's kind of wanting to know where we came from. I think that's more and more important at a time like this where there's a kind of sense of uncertainty. We're unclear as to any kind of national identity. Who are we? Where are we going? And when it's like that... It's more important for us to find out how did we get here? What made us like this? And what lessons we can learn from that? I think it's really significant that the sale of non-fiction history has gone up so rapidly. In the last decade, I was reading in The Independent yesterday, non-fiction history has increased by 45%. Well, that's really great. Thanks so much for coming in, Louise. You've taught, taught me a lot about the Crimean War anyway, and I'm really excited now to go away and read your book. Well, thank you very much for listening. That was A.L. Berridge discussing her book, Into the Valley of Death, which is available to buy now. Now, here's Stuart Binns reading an extract from Crusade, followed by an interview. Chapter 14, Battle of Matsara. By the time we reached the Bay of Matsara, Count Roger's army had already launched its attack on the Byzantines. It was a chaotic scene. Although it was late September... It was still hot and dry, and great clouds of dust billowed in the wake of horses, men and supply carts moving rapidly across the battlefield. Not even the air out to sea was clear. The Byzantine triremes were belching volley after volley of burning cauldrons. Only later did I hear that it was called Greek fire, a lethal weapon, the ingredients of which were a closely guarded secret, known only to the emperor and his senior commanders. Thick smoke made the whole sky above the ships as black as Hades. Where the cauldrons landed, infernos of flaming pitch raged. Men and horses were hurled into the air, or knocked down like skittles, covered in burning pitch, destined to meet a grisly fate, consumed by fire. Ibn Hamad directed us to the centre of the action. Quickly, more and more men are coming ashore. There are Thracian and Macedonian themes, and over there, Greeks. This is the elite of the Byzantine army. We soon reach Count Roger at his command post on a promontory just back from the bay. He lost no time in delivering his battle strategy.
It is good to see you and your men. We have a few problems. If we let too many more get ashore, we'll be overrun. My archers are trying to stop any more ships from coming in and my cavalry are driving a wedge into their beachhead. But they must have 500 men ashore already. I need you to support the cavalry, try to split their force in two, and then aim to cut off their retreat to the sea. We rode down into the fray and we were soon in the midst of vicious hand-to-hand -hand fighting. The sheer weight of numbers and the mass of bodies, both living and dead, made progress slow. I looked over to check on my comrades. All were flailing and hacking in a sea of carnage, benefiting from their hours of training. With her helmet down, Adela looked no different to anybody else and was holding her own. Edwin and Swain were close to her, each watching her flank, while Swain was easily distinguished by the speed of his blade and agility in the saddle. Ibn Hamid called over, Look, to the left, the two ships making for shore, the Varangian guard, the Emperor's personal bodyguard. There must be 200 of them. Ride to the Count, tell him to direct his archers at them. They mustn't be allowed to come ashore. With Adela and Edwin in his wake, Swain rode like the wind to deliver his message, while Ibn Hamid and I protected our position. I was shocked by what I saw as the ships carrying the Varangian guard drew closer. They looked like Englishmen. They're carrying shields and axes like housecarls. Many of them are. Norse, Danes, Bolts, English. They're highly paid mercenaries, the best infantry you'll ever see. The one at the prow of the first ship, giving orders in the scarlet cloak, that's the captain of the guard, the finest soldier in your world and mine. He looked English too. I could see long blonde hair trailing beneath his helmet and the distinctive decorated circular shield of a housecarl. Then he fell backwards, struck by an arrow which pierced his hauberk at the top of his shoulder, and then by another which hit him in the chest. That is a piece of very good fortune. The captain of the Varangians leads the army unless the emperor is present. We have just killed their general. Ibn Hamid was smiling broadly. Arrows were now falling on the Varangians like hailstones, and the order was issued for sails to be unfurled and for the oarsmen to row the Byzantine ships away. As soon as the men on the beaches saw their fleet turn seawards, there was panic and a mass retreat towards the ships. Roger immediately ordered his own cavalry squadrons and all his reserves to attack. The Norman destriers flowed into the bay like a tidal bore. It was a mass slaughter. The Byzantines had no defence and a stark choice, stand and fight in a hopeless final redoubt, or discard their weapons and armour and try to swim to the ships. Most chose the latter option. Many were drowned, and the rest were killed by the arrows and quarrels from the unremitting onslaught unleashed by the Norman archers and bowmen. Those who chose to stand their ground fared little better. Initially, the separate themes formed their own redoubts. The Macedonians distinctive with their black-plumed helmets, the Thracians in their blue tunics and the Greeks wielding small, highly decorated shields. But soon, as numbers diminished rapidly, the three redoubts became one. After about an hour, with Byzantine numbers reduced to under a hundred, Count Roger ordered his men to cease the attack. He then stood high in his stirrups and spoke to his foes in fluent Greek. I offer you quarter. 
Lay down your weapons, and you will not be harmed or enslaved. You are brave men, the most noble of a great army. You are free to find passage to your homes or to stay here in Sicily and make new lives. All are welcome here, Muslims, Christians, Jews. Our taxes are fair and our people are happy. You're even free to join my own army. We will gladly have you, if you will swear your allegiance to Sicily. It is your choice. Hello, my name's Charlie and I'm interviewing Stuart Binns for the Penguin podcast. Why do you think war is such a popular theme for novels? Well, I think like we get rid of all sorts of anxieties and uh, get all sorts of adrenaline charges and live out drama and adventure through stories and through either fictional accounts or, or, or real accounts of, of big events. War is one of those things where you, you see human beings at their worst and at their best. And I think it's important to learn about human beings at their, at their worst in order to make sure that we can, we can avoid it as much as possible. Um, we always like to hear about human beings at their, at their best because we, we, you know, we take pride in that and we take pride in what our fellow human beings can do. And war seems to be an ever popular subject. I suppose if we live in, a t in times of relative peace as we do now, we, we like to live out um, uh, perhaps our own sort of sense of adventure or, and also to kind of get a sense of fear and horror that, is one, that we're one step removed from. I think there's something in that as well. It's really interesting you should say that because obviously we are at war, but we are really removed from it. Like you say, do you think reading historical fiction or novels around war gives people a greater understanding of current affairs and current wars that we're involved in? That's a very good point. Um, I mean, I, I, I was a soldier for, for a while and, you know, anyone who's been in a conflict situation will tell you there is nothing glamorous about war and there's nothing glamorous about conflict. Um, even though we have... 24-7 news and we see graphic pictures uh, all the time, it's still not the same. And if there is a lesson to be learned from looking at historical fiction about war or even non-fiction books about war, I hope it is that you know, the war is a terrible thing. And although you can, you can read about it and understand it, I hope it convinces people not to get involved with it. Um, what inspired you to write about the Crusades? Well, first of all, it, it, it's a sequel to, to Conquest, um, the first book, which obviously wasn't about the Crusades, and, and the sequel happened to fall into the period of the Crusades. But it was a period that helped me develop the story uh, from the first book in particularly graphic and exciting ways. And um, fortunately, Edgar the Aetheling, who is the main character of the second book, was pretty central to the first book, but we know he survived uh, all the traumas of the Norman invasion, even though he was heir to the throne, and probably did go to the Crusades and survived them. That was an ideal opportunity to do the sequel, but have the Crusades as the, as the centrepiece to the story. Are there any authors in particular that have inspired you? Well, my inspiration in, in terms of history going way back was actually from nonfiction, interestingly, because, you know, I, I read history uh, at university or modern history, and I was a reader of people like uh, A.J.P. Taylor and Alan Bullock and, and, and William Shearer's book on the Nazis. Th those were the sort of things that inspired me as a youngster. 
It was only when I came to want to write fiction that I read fiction in the area that I'm now in and, 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 and started to read Harry Sidebottom and Connie Gilden and Bernard Cornwell and so on. I only started to read those then to get a sense of the year and a sense of the genre. And um, what was the hardest thing about writing the book? The hardest thing was the craft skills. I'd written a lot before for the, the television work that I do, and I'd written a lot of non-fiction. I hoped the transfer to fiction would be easier, but it was pretty difficult. Dialogue's obviously a challenge for anyone doing fiction. But for me, perhaps the biggest mistake I made was in overwriting. Obviously, coming from television and making documentaries, I had all the resources at my command, and the audience is very passive. And what I tried to do when I started to write fiction was try to recreate that total experience. And that led me to overwrite. And I was given a very good tip early on, which said, don't write everything you want the reader to think and see and feel. Because if you overfeed them, you'll put them off. And that was a really good tip. And once I'd got that understood, and once I'd started to adapt that, it made the writing more economical. And, and of course, it made it, it made it better for the reader. And interesting, the first book, I, the first draft of the first book was well over 200,000 words, was eventually published at 130 odd. So that was, that was testament to that learning curve. So you obviously say that the craft of writing is the biggest challenge or one of the challenges you faced. Were there any other things that were challenging for you moving from non-fiction writing to writing fiction? Yes, I suppose the other, the other thing was when, when you're writing for television, it's a didactic experience, really. You, you, no matter how hard you try, you are conveying, on the whole, conveying information and telling a, a didactic narrative. But when, you, when you're writing fiction, you mustn't let the reader think that. So you must hide structures um, within the plot and, and to sort of move the reader along without it plodding. And that was also something to conquer. And one of the techniques a lot of people use, of course, is to read things back to oneself as if, the reader, as if you're the reader. And, I, and I, I do that. I read out loud to myself. And it's amazing how you can see the flaws when you do do that, because if it doesn't read well to you, it doesn't read well to the audience. Did you ever find it difficult when you perhaps had to change a, a historical event that you knew about in order to make a story work? Did that ever happen when you're writing? That's a very good question. I like to think that the history in both Conquest and Crusade is spot on in the sense that all the major characters are real characters. And all the real events are, are all there in the, right, in the right place at the right time. However, there is no evidence that uh, Harrywood was at the Battle of Hastings uh, and probably wasn't. But it was a very important device for me to get him from the beginning of his life, which we know something about, uh, to the crucial part of his life, uh, the Siege of Ely, which we know something about. That journey in order to, to create a full account of his life, had to have a certain logic. And that logic, for example, involved, it seemed to me, him being at Hastings. So that's, that's fiddling with history in the sense that, you know, it's pretty unlikely that he was there. But on the other hand, using the example of Hastings to make the opposite point, 
I've read all the accounts and all the different versions of Hastings, uh, uh, you know, endlessly. And so I'm pretty confident now that what I think happened is probably the most likely scenario on the day. And I'm proud of that. And that, for me, is important that, that the Battle of Hastings itself, that I don't try and suggest things happened there that didn't or that I impose some, you know, fictional things onto, onto the battle that, that couldn't have happened or didn't happen. I'm pretty confident that the account in Conquest is as close to actuality as it could be. Um, and finally, can you tell us what we can expect from the next instalment? Ah, well, um, in Crusade, there is a, um, a set of circumstances uh, and a, a, a character appears who, and it will be obvious to all concerned when he appears, um, who will continue the story for us uh, into the, the sequel to Crusade, which uh, um, we're calling Anarchy. Uh, and that carries the story into the next great period of English history. So I want to take England's story into the 1130s, 40s, 50s and on to, to continue England's story, but with the character who will be a direct link back to both Crusade uh, and conquest, and the link you'll you'll spot when you when you read Con- when you read Crusade. Brilliant, thank you. That was Stuart Binns talking about his book Crusade, which is out now. We now have an interview with Harry Sidebottom talking about his book The Wolves of the North. Hello, and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name is Danny Horn, and I'm here interviewing Harry Sidebottom. Hi. I'm Harry Sidebottom, the author of the Warrior of Rome novels. Um, first off, Harry, could you just introduce your books for us? They're a series of historical action-adventure novels set in the Roman Empire in the 3rd century AD. They revolve around a central character called Ballista, who's an Anglo-Saxon nobleman who's been taken as a hostage by the Romans and has worked his way up in the Roman army. And it's really the adventures of him and the people around him, what the Romans would call his familiar. And it takes them to lots of exotic places. And um, this is your field of expertise, really, isn't it? I mean, you've written a lot of fiction and non-fiction around, um, around Rome and around Greece under Roman rule. Uh, why is it that you've decided to focus on that area? Well, I, as you say, I'm a professional ancient historian. I teach at Oxford I picked the third century for a bunch of reasons. Um, one, because it's an area I'd already done research in, so I had a bit of a leg up in doing the hard work. It's a period of really fast change, if not crisis, and it's a period which we don't know much about. There are very few sources, although they're quite interesting. But because we don't know much about it, it gives, us, gives me as a novelist the chance to kind of play with history in a way that a better documented time wouldn't let me, I think is the answer. Oh, my dad really loves your books. And the reason he gave me is because they're both educational and really entertaining. Um, do you think it was your intention to make this period more accessible? Yes, although they are novels. They're not history books in disguise. Um, but yeah, I, I do a lot of work on historical background, not just the the sort of the real things like weapons, clothes, food, but the harder to grasp things like the mentalities. Um, Yeah, I want people who come to the novels and don't know anything about the classical world, about Rome, I hope they will have learnt something by the end of the novel. 
But equally, guys who already know a lot about Rome, I'd like them to have some of their preconceived notions kind of questioned and maybe shaken up a bit. And do you find that easier to do that using fiction? Yes and no. I think you tend to reach a much bigger audience with fiction. Um, More people will read a historical novel than will read even the best-selling history book. And I think those of us who work in the field of ancient history and archaeology, we've really got to reach out to the widest possible public. Otherwise, the the subject we love is in danger of being very marginalised and, if not, dying. And you've got a new book coming out, um, The Wolves of the North. Could you just tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, the fifth novel in the series is The Wolves of the North. Um, It's a bit of a departure for me because, in two ways. One, it's got a very new setting for me. It's set in the great steppes, the Eurasian steppes, um, the Russian steppes. I wanted to take the leading characters and take them out of their comfort zone, put them somewhere where not only was the culture around them completely alien and weird, the nomads they have to go and see, but so was the actual landscape itself, the endless, flat, slightly rolling, treeless plains of Eurasia. The other reason was I wanted to sort of blur genre boundaries, and this is the first novel of mine that actually has a serial killer in it, and it's been a lot of fun to do the serial killer, and I'll be very careful so I don't give away (laughs) (laughs) either who dies or who the killer is. (laughs) And um, why did you choose to focus on the character Ballista and not a character from another territory under Rome's rule? Well, I was, I think really it's just because I happened to be reading Beowulf and some Anglo-Saxon history at the time. I wanted an outsider as the hero just for the simple reason that outsiders comment on stuff that an insider wouldn't. So, and the comparison, sort of the classical comparison I'd use, the two great classical historians who wrote about Rome, one being Tacitus, who never really bothers to explain anything to you. You don't get much out of reading him unless you already know a lot about Rome. He's an insider writing for other insiders. Why would he bother to tell you stuff like how Roman legion works or whatever? But the other one, Polybius, was a Greek. And because he was a Greek writing about Rome for a Greek audience, he does actually take the time and the trouble to explain things. And it struck me that in a novel, in fiction, it would be much more plausible if an outsider in Rome commented on stuff like Roman architecture, Roman social customs, Roman habits, whatever. If he was a Roman, then there was a danger. It looked sort of terribly shoehorned in in that bad historical novel way when you suddenly get some people doing dialogue, which turns into a lecture of the novelist's research, and you get three pages of that, which is boring as sin, really. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually something I hadn't thought about before. Um, I suppose it leads me on to my next question. Do you find it difficult kind of switching between fiction writing and non-fiction writing? Obviously, the style is so different. Um, No, I don't, actually. I don't find it as different as people tend to imagine because I think if you're writing a straight history book or a historical novel, the process is actually in many ways very similar because you decide what you're going to write about, you draw the parameters around your research, what you're going to read, what you're going to look at, where you're going to go. And then you take notes, and then you go through the notes, and you decide which bits are useful and which aren't. And then you write it to try and carry a reader with you, whether it's a conventional history book or fiction. So, yeah, while there are obvious differences, you know, my <laughs> conventional history works tend to have a lot less obscenities or scenes of violence or description of sunsets in. 
Um, it, it's not as totally different as people tend to think. And I guess that's what makes your book so appealing to so many. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in, Harry, and answering all of our questions. The Wolves of the North, Harry's fifth book, is out now and available to buy from all good bookshops and online retailers. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Harry Sidebottom talking to us about The Wolves of the North. Next, Clive Aslett reads an extract from War Memorial and discusses the inspiration behind his book. OK, so Clive, welcome to the Penguin podcast. Um, we'd love you to read a passage from your book, um, War Memorial. Um, so let's start with that. One of my earliest memories is of the War Memorial at the church where I grew up. As I read the names out loud, wondering who they could have been, my mother told me, in hushed but urgent tones, to desist. It might upset any family or friends of the dead who overheard. War memorials are a familiar sight in Britain, particularly its villages. I still look at the roles of honour, trying to picture the world that the fallen came from, what they did on active service, and how the village coped with its grief. I'm not alone in doing so. Although none of the soldiers who fought for the British Army in the First World War are now alive, and the ranks of those who took part in the Second World War are thinning, the number of people who participate in Remembrance Day ceremonies is rising. More visitors explore the battlefields each year. In our secular and libertarian age, desecration of a war memorial, whether by a protester swinging on a flag or by a scrap metal merchant melting down a bronze plaque, evokes Outrage of the kind that ancient Greece visited on Alcibiades. War memorials are not defunct. New conflicts have added new names. I wrote this book to answer the question that occurred to me as a child sitting next to my mother in that parish church. Who were the individuals behind the names? What were their stories? I took a village war memorial almost at random, the one at Lidford in Devon. I knew nothing about the 23 names attached in bronze letters to the granite cross. The names themselves consisted simply of surname and initials, without so much as rank or regiment. I did know that Lidford, having been a Saxon burr, was an exceptionally interesting place historically, with a precipitous gorge owned by the National Trust. It's on the edge of Dartmoor, and I had no objection to spending time there. I imagined that it had made its living principally from agriculture until the fairly recent past, and would therefore be a settled place with many of the families represented on the cross still resident in the village. In one respect, the war memorial was unusual. It had names from the Falklands and Iraq. This book is the result of my researches into family history and military and naval archives. I close it with reluctance because each of the individuals with whom I have been living in the course of writing this book has become close to me. I continue to wonder about them. I took Lidford as, so to speak, a random sample of one, a representative example of what must be more than 10,000 village war memorials in the country. Other villages might be different, but the character of this one in the first half of the 20th century turned out to be not at all what I had expected. I had assumed the population at the time of the First World War to have been deeply rooted in its birthplace. It wasn't. Some village names are on the memorial, familiar from parish records and the logbook of the school, but the two stations at the railway junction, dismantled so completely that a casual visitor would not know that the junction had ever been there, brought new families. 
other young men unable to find employment following the closure of the mines in the countryside blighted by agricultural depression from the 1870s left the village. Two of them had already emigrated to Canada by 1914 and they died fighting with Canadian regiments. They were remembered by their families in Lidford. By contrast, some of the Second World War names, although recorded on the War Memorial, have been forgotten by the modern village. They were not traditional village people, but occupied some of the big houses on the outskirts for a time. They went to boarding schools. I could find nobody who knew about the three Herbert brothers beyond their presence on the War Memorial. The book became a record of memory and social change. Virtually no memorials to ordinary soldiers existed before the First World War. They were created, as I explain in the book, as a result of what might now be described as a Princess Diana moment, an unfamiliar display of feeling for a nation that, at the beginning of the 20th century, was even more emotionally tongue-tied than it was at the end of it. Memorials arose almost as a folk movement across Britain as communities sought to express the trauma of their grief. They continued to be bearers of meaning. I feel privileged to have come close to the lives of 22 men and one woman. The loss of some of them is still raw. It has made me realise that, as my mother knew, the symbolism of a war memorial is highly charged. My generation has lived through half a century of prosperity, not having to think much about the wars fought by the professional armed services in our name. This has given a new and no less profound resonance to war memorials. While continuing to embody simple patriotism, they also keep facts about which we might not always be comfortable in the public eye. With time, memory fades. Families at home may never have known what their loved ones experienced at the front. My task is to reconstruct those experiences, those lives. Neither the people nor their tales are always what you would expect. They remind us, in the words of the nurse I quote at the beginning of this book, that, oh, so sadly, they are mostly boys. Thank you, Clive. That was lovely. So, Clive, tell us what attracted you to this project in the first instance. Why and why Lidford? I've always been fascinated by village war memorials. I've been to thousands of villages in Britain and very often I look at the memorial and I think what a lot of names there are from somewhere that's very small and how tranquil the place is by contrast to the experiences people must have had as they went off to fight. And I chose this memorial at Lidford almost at random. I knew it was an interesting place. It was unusual because it had names not just from the First World War and the Second World War, but also the Falklands and Iraq. So it covered the whole span of the 20th century into the 21st century. But I wanted, above all, to make it a record of every man at war. How important is it to remember, and what place does writing and literature have in this? Well, I think it's very important that we should remember the the original idea of war memorials, I think, was very much motivated by the thought because because there hadn't really been any except for regiments and one or two uh, officers, but, but certainly none for ordinary soldiers before the First World War. And people wanted to build war memorials so that 
future generations wouldn't make the same terrible mistake that would lead to these awful conflicts. Of course, that was a hope which which was noble but not really fulfilled because because there were future conflicts. But that was the hope. And so I think that remembering um, is very important for that reason. I think it's also very important as the world gets scattered and communities fragment that uh, we do remember and, and it, it ties us back into our community and into our own local history, which is very important. And I think that um, literature... And, well, in my case, I was not only looking at uh, literature, but at a whole range of uh, documents and other written records is absolutely critical because um, we don't just see it as we don't just see what happened as a series of facts, but we can actually begin to experience what it really was like to go through those awful things which which our grandparents and their generation suffered. What advice would you give to people who would like to research their own war memorials? How would they go about that? Well, I started researching the Lidford War Memorial with absolutely no knowledge whatsoever beyond the names that were on the memorial. And I hope other people will be encouraged by seeing my book and realising that actually you can reveal a whole tale of what people did, both partly in the village, but also what they did as they went off to war, because there are all sorts of records that you can research, and many of them are now online. Um, It's a very good idea to start with the National Archive and with, um, for example, they have a partnership with Ancestry, which is all online, and it puts all the census information online, which is very, very good. Um, The Commonwealth War Graves Commission is an excellent place to start, because then you can identify the soldiers Um, exactly who they were and work out from that. Um, Once you have the battalion that they were fighting in, you can work out what the battalion was doing so you know what those soldiers were doing on any any day. Um, the, the, The National Archive might well hold their individual records. And then there are places like the Imperial War Museum and the National Army Museum which have incredible records of diaries and letters and sometimes official documents, um, recordings, uh, be they audio or visual, which are simply fantastic. And so the past sometimes leaps out at you from the very words that people used when perhaps they were in the trenches. Out of all of the names on the memorial, was there a particular story that you know resonated with you, that struck a chord with you? Was there anyone in particular? Uh, well, there, there, there were loads, really, of different kinds. There was the professional soldier who spent all his life fighting. And in 1916, he married a local girl. And a fortnight later, he'd gone off to the Somme. That was very, very sad. Um, uh, They're all sad in the sense that they end in deaths, but they're also fascinating for what they reveal about the heroism that just ordinary people could could display. And one, I think, that um, uh, also uh, he, he died on the Somme is the story of... Sam Voisey, who had emigrated, a couple of the um, people from the First World War had already emigrated to Canada because life was so hard in Britain. He had emigrated and he signed up at 44. He didn't need to sign up. Uh, 40 was the cutoff uh, date for signing up in any case. He had to lie about his age. And he left his young family of eight who had 
only emigrated to Canada a few years before, and he went back and fought and died. And I think not only of him, but what was it like for his family to continue living? You know, to, they must have had to have been pretty tough to be living with all those young children in a country that, where they didn't have any support. And, of course, you also met with some of the families of the people um, written on the War Memorial. What was that like, speaking to them, and how did they feel about it? One of the privileges of writing this book was to meet with some of the families of the people who are remembered on the War Memorial. And sometimes they had uh, albums of photographs, and we could look through those together. And, uh, you know, that was marvellous, because then I had a different perspective, not one from just the written record, but from the memories which have been passed down within these families. And I found that very moving. And I loved, <clears throat> I always loved talking to old people and some of the old people in the village in their 90s. The memories that they have go back to a world that I could hardly imagine, really. Talk to us a little bit about the growth in remembrance tourism. What it, why, why are the numbers going up? What is it about visits to World War I battlefields, you know? Why is this happening now? It's a very interesting thing that you might imagine that the numbers of people attending Remembrance Day services, for example, and visiting the battlefields in France and Flanders would be going down because the numbers of people who took part in the um, uh, world wars is falling off and there's nobody who actually fought for Britain in the First World War who's alive anymore. But the reverse is happening the numbers at Remembrance Day ceremonies are increasing and the numbers of people visiting battlefields are increasing. I think there are a number of reasons. I think one is that, of course, Britain is still at war, which doesn't impact on our daily lives, but still it is true. And I think that people have become increasingly aware of what soldiers are doing on our behalf. I think there are other uh, explanations. Family history is an enormous subject. The internet has helped hugely by putting so many records online. Um, also, people who are particularly interested in the First World War, for example, can look at things like the Great War Forum. It's a huge resource and a discussion point. If, if you ask a question on the forum, Within 24 hours, you've had six really expert replies <laughs> answering some of the obscurest questions you could possibly imagine. So um, the Internet has provided a great um, platform which people can talk to each other on. And uh, I think that also, you know, history, in my opinion, isn't always brilliantly taught in schools. But the one thing that people do learn about is the 20th century. So I think that's also put a bit of a focus on, on remembrance. Thank you, Clive. And finally, just tell us what's next for you. Well, as a result of writing this book, the thing which has been tremendously exciting for me is that I have become... I had to get involved in lots of things that I really knew little about before I started. I thought I had a broad, a good broad overview of this um, uh, of this subject, but actually I found that men were going off to fight in places where I didn't know we'd even been. And I've taken one detail of the First World War. It's became, become such a, a, um, a, an obsession, I could say, really, for me that I'm now writing a novel about it. Fantastic. Thank you, Clive. Thanks. That was Clive Aslett talking about the significance of War Memorial, and his book is out now.
And now I'm joined by Victoria from Penguin to ask me some questions about my own book, Kandak. Hi, Patrick, and thanks for coming in. Hi, Victoria. Thanks for having me. So to start off with, what do you think are the difficulties and sensitivities to be considered when writing about war? I think the main sensitivity is obviously that in war people get hurt and people die. Uh, And that's difficult for people to read about. It's difficult to write about. Uh, And one of the things I've always been conscious of in the books that I've written is a sensitivity towards, uh, for example, the families of men I mentioned who've been killed and injured. Um, I think beyond that, though, war, especially these days, is is quite a um, political act. And people will always have an opinion on war. As a soldier, you're sort of slightly freed from that. And, And I write quite apolitically about my experiences rather than the right or wrongs of what the British Army are doing. But that's sometimes a difficult line to tread. And what do you think are the most important elements to war writing? I think one of the fascinating things about writing about conflict in general is it's it's one of the few uh, things you really need to be as close to it as possible to write well. Uh, and there's a timeless debate about whether you need to have experienced something to write about it, whether great novelists write about what they know or whether they write from imagination. But I think uh, war... Uh, conflict, uh, fighting, those sort of circumstances of life and death, more than most things require um, a first-hand observer. And I don't think it's any accident that the, the really great writers of conflict were all either uh, participants or right up on the front line witnessing what they then wrote about. So who, in your opinion, does it well and why? Well, I think that there's a huge list of people who, who write well, and I, I've thought about this time and time again. It's a question people often ask. And there are sort of different approaches. I think there are some writers who write the intensity of conflict brilliantly. Michael Hare, whose book Dispatches about the Vietnam War, it launched all the most famous Vietnam War films, and it's one of the most brilliant examples of war reportage you'll ever read. Um, I've mentioned him already in this podcast, but Joseph Heller's Catch-22 is one of the the best written, one of the funniest, one of the most sharply observed um, bits of writing about armies, I think more generally the absurdity of big armies at conflict. Um, Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That is a very straightforward, honest, clear, in many ways restrained account of the First World War. And by being so pared down, he manages to convey the horror of that, I think, more effectively than someone going slightly more over the top. All these writers, I think, have in common that, as I said before, they they were right there. Um, And they used different ways of, of, of portraying the reality of conflict. But I think if you can get a real feeling, a vivid feeling of what it's like across to a readership who, of course, will have no experience of that. that that's the mark of a great, great writer on conflict. So do you think books which are written by people that haven't experienced you know, fighting in a war are less effective or do you think they try to focus on something else? Because some of our authors that we've heard in this podcast, you know, they write about the Crimean War or, you know, the Crusades, and they weren't obviously there. They're trying to sort of imagine what it had been like. Well, I think in some ways that can be more successful. It liberates the writer, uh, and the writer can invest their characters with more emotionally. I think people are 
afraid of or wary of writing about something current that they don't have any experience of. I think the brilliance of some of the writers we've already heard from today is they can use the distance of history um, to play around with their characters a bit. I mean, uh, there are many notable exceptions, I think, to the rule um, about experiencing it. And, and one that, that springs to mind um, more recently is uh, Ben Fountain, whose book Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Um, to my mind, it, it's the catch-22 of the most recent Iraq conflict. It's, it's brilliantly observed, brilliantly funny. Uh, and Ben Fountain has had no experience in uniform himself. But I think the distinction is what Fountain does well is, is, as I say, invest his characters with some questions, with some ideas. He plays around with the genre. I don't think he necessarily intended to write conflict itself in a very, very realistic way. And I think to do that, you'd, you'd at least have to have, have really studied the conflict as you're talking about and tried to get some first-hand account of that. Mm. So what are your favourite books in the genre? I mean, I've already mentioned Catch-22 and, and Goodbye to All That. I think Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls is an amazing account of, of an individual at war. Uh, and I think Jarhead, uh, the Anthony Swofford book that was made into the film, is also a brilliant example of why uh, young men in more recent times might join the army or the marines it is in that case and, and some, some of the boredoms and frustrations that go with fighting because of course it's not all um, being out on the front line charging around and, and there's a big hinterland to a soldier which is also interesting to explore. So coming back to your own books they're very personal to you based on your own experiences as we know when you were doing operational tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. What has the general response been? Um, I, I've, I've been really uh, humbled by the response to both books. Uh, the first book was all about me and, and my experiences. And so my guiding principle in that was just to be honest, um, to be as honest as I possibly could be about what I was thinking at, at any one time, what I was afraid of, what I was enjoying, what I was not enjoying. And then if the response was, well, I think you're an idiot or, or, or I don't think you approach this in the right frame of mind, I could say, well, that you're entitled to that opinion. I'm just being honest about how I felt. Kandak was a more difficult book to write because I wanted to um, come back slightly from myself and talk about other people, um, talk about specifically the Afghan soldiers that I'd worked with. And I felt a huge amount of responsibility towards them and towards their voice, especially because they wouldn't have been putting it themselves. You know, they're not going to sit down and, and pen their own memoirs, unfortunately. And in fact, uh, they might not even ever get the chance to sort of read uh, or have translated to them what it is I've written. And when you're dealing with someone else's story, I think as a writer, you have to be much more careful, much more disciplined um, to get it right. So that was difficult. I wasn't sure how people would respond to Kandak because in the space between Junior Officers Reading Club and Kandak, there's been loads of writing about the modern conflicts we're fighting, loads of stuff on Afghanistan. And I was worried that people might have a bit of fatigue or they might not be interested anymore. And I was worried that people wouldn't want to read about the Afghan side as much as they want to hear about the British side. But fortunately, um, the response has been very positive and that's quite touching. Well, I think it's great to hear about the Afghan soldiers because in the press we hear nothing. And you say that a lot in the book that, you know, they've got a, a missing voice. So what we see in Kandak is that you go on this journey, which I'm sure many other British soldiers did, about getting to know them better and how your perceptions have changed over time. Do you think you successfully gave these soldiers a voice that was otherwise missing? I hope I did. I really tried to. I, I, the, question, the question is, well, what is successfully? I think what I found as I was writing the book is some elements were much harder than I thought they would be. Um, the, the three or four Afghans who I was very close to, I was able to sit down to uh, sit down with, 
talk to get some of their memories of our time together out, get some analysis of what they thought about the things we'd been through together. But it's it's difficult enough talking to complete strangers in your own language. But if you're talking to them through an interpreter against the background of uh, quite an intense conflict, mm. some of the Afghans who I would have loved to talk to just quite frankly didn't want to speak to me. Um, tragically, one or two of the guys who I met in 2007 and worked alongside um, were not still around in 2009. One had been quite seriously injured and very sadly one had been killed just before I got to, got to sit down and talk to him. So... I tried to. I found it more difficult than I think I had thought I would and more difficult to tell a coherent story because, of course, actually what you're telling are lots and lots and lots of little different stories and each person's story will have its own spin. Yeah. I mean, it's great that the book starts off with you being right there in the action and sort of giving us anecdotes from that time and then at the end you sort of describe going back to Afghanistan to interview the soldiers. I mean, the mix between the two, there's loads of amusing anecdotes and and different moments when you reflect on the strain and stress and frustrations of you know being out there and trying to communicate and working alongside them was it or is it hard to capture those moments of intensity and the conflicting emotions you felt on the page i think it's it's hard to capture the contrasts i think when you when you're going through something very intense or at least my experience of trying to write something intense like an ambush or a firefight has been that if you just kind of let it flow through you and get it all on the page, it comes across. And I think that's where um, writing, perhaps, of all disciplines, can convey something about conflict that even film or photography um, can't because you have the, the luxury with words of pace and, and intensity and variety. So I, I, I've never found writing something traditionally intense like an ambush particularly challenging although I'm sure um, it was challenging to try and read what I'd written after I tried to write it. Um, I think the difficult thing is showing the contrast. How do you move from the intensity of an ambush when your heart's going 100 miles an hour so you're writing at 100 miles an hour and you're cramming words in as quickly as everyone's running around to the come down from that fight the, the sort of contemplation being in a patrol base missing home um, that 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 contrast, I think, is very difficult. And then the contrast of my own experience to the Afghan experience, because um, on the one hand, we were going through the same thing. You know, we were in the same ambush. We were in the same patrol base. We were fighting the same conflict. But on the other hand, I knew I had to get through six months or, or a couple of weeks, and I'd be flying back home to my comfy bed and, and, and London. And the Afghans I was with were there for the long haul. That was home. They had nowhere else to go. And so whatever I thought, whatever, however I processed what I was going through was obviously going to be very diff different from how they were going to go through it. And it's difficult to get those contrasts out, I think. Yeah, I mean, what I found is that there's a, it's almost like a love story that the British soldiers have with the Afghan soldiers. And when you left, you were just itching to get back. And you're always concerned that the Afghan soldiers don't feel the same way that you do. But do you think by the end of your tours that you probably were on the same page and you shared the same emotions for one another? I think, I don't know about shared the same emotions and were on the same page, but one of the interesting things that came out while I was writing Kandak is that maybe there was something about being a soldier, about being at war, that transcended the differences, cultural differences, the fact that we spoke different languages, the fact that we came from such different places. And I was interviewing a, a British army soldier who just got back from Afghanistan literally two weeks ago, 
And I was asking him if he went through the same journey I went through and, and where he felt he was with the Afghans he'd been working with by the end of his tour. Uh, and he said, well, the thing is that soldiers are soldiers. You know, wherever you are in the world, whatever you're doing, whatever their background, there is something about being a soldier which transcends all that. So I think there is a connection that can be made. And I, I was very lucky to have made it, I think. Well, just one more question. Uh, do you plan to write any more books on your experiences in the British Army? <laughs> Um, I'm smiling because I think I've managed to milk just about as much as I can in two books out of a very brief five years, both my experience in the British Army and my experiences with the Afghan National Army. I'm not sure uh, there's much left to cover. Mm. Um, so I think that's probably a no. But uh, if I find something else too interesting to write about, I'll, I'll get back in touch with you. Great. Well, thanks very much, Patrick, for answering my questions. Well, thanks for having me, Victoria. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them on podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find them on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.